you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Well, howdy folks, and welcome back to Prairie Justice, the Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. This is Ranger Gord coming at you from a new home in Pincher Creek, and today we're going to do something a little bit different on uh, Prairie Justice. Normally we go back to our Golden Age action comics, occasionally the Golden Age leading comics for synopsises and dramas. Uh, but this uh, today we're not going to have a drama, but I am going to do a synopsis actually on a series of comics that, uh, incredibly enough, do not feature the vigilante in these stories. But in my in my uh, chronological sort of uh, retroactive continuity chronology, is that enough words to put together? I place this set of stories somewhere in between Action Comics number 53, which we covered last week, and Leading Comics number 5, which we will cover uh, coming up, one of the Seven Soldiers of Victory stories. And this is sort of going to lead into that Seven Soldiers of Victory story, so that's why I'm placing it right now. And what series of comics am I talking about? I am talking about, of course, All-Star Squadron. You may have heard of it, as it's rumored that Vigilante is a member of All-Star Squadron, although uh, Roy Thomas, his writer, rarely used him, except unless he was adapting the uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory story, or just needed a really a lot of uh, heroes to stand around in group shots in the background. But uh, the reason I am including that this area, it also happens to dovetail in between an event from 1985 when this series was published called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yes, this is an infamous crisis tie-in. The book that uh, fixed the DC Universe and prepared it to be fixed again and again and again and again. But it was a phenomenal work and this is one of the tie-ins that uh, Roy Thomas utilized to uh, try to put his own storylines into uh, the crisis. And it also included a Justice Society story, a classic Justice Society story, uh, called Shanghai Into Space. And it would end up leading into, as I said, uh, the Seven Soldiers of Victory story in Leading Comics number 5. And somewhere in between, there was a number of issues that uh, tied in the activities of uh, a few of the All-Star Squadron members that were not uh, working with either of those uh, groups, either the JSA or the Seven Soldiers. So why am I including this if Vigilante's not included? Well, it's the hint is in the t- title. I am calling this Episode 32, All-Star Squadron 51, 53, and 54, The Vigilante Podcast for Dummies. Yes, we are going to see in our chronology what happens to that wonderful arch-villain of the Vigilante called the Dummy. And I'm sure it does nothing for Greg Saunders' ego to know that his greatest villain was called the Dummy. What kind of joker would call himself the, the Dummy? 
Well, we're going to find out all about that. And we're going to find out uh, Roy's little retroactive origin for bringing the dummy back into continuity um, since he first appeared fighting Vidge in leading comics number one, our first Seven Soldiers of Victory adaptation. So, uh, stand aside, this is going to be a bumpy ride. No drama, as I said. Uh, we're just going to do a synopsis, and we're also going to do a bit of a runoff in between the uh, the issues that happen in between. This is part of a larger, long-ranging arc that uh, took place over about six to seven months through 1985 and in the first month or two of 1986. So not all of them are going to introduce or involve Vidge or the dummy. So we will just kind of dip in and out as uh, those kind of uh, complicated arcs tended to do. And of course, uh, this all ties in with uh, Crisis as well. So it's a very complicated arc. And I'll do my best to try to figure out where we place the dummy into our chronology. But first... Let's have a podcast promo, and then I will spillane later. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. It is 1989. After 28 years of dividing a city and symbolizing the divide of the Cold War, the Berlin Wall opens up, and from there, everything changes. Fallen Walls, Open Curtains is a podcast miniseries from Pop Culture Affidavit and hosted by me, Tom Paneris. From November 2019 until December 2021, I am going to take a look at the events that took place 30 years ago, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Along the way, I will be flashing back to the landmark and not-so-landmark pieces of popular culture that reflected and defined the Cold War. The first episode will drop on November 9th, 2019, and future episodes will be released quarterly at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. A Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I just love saying that. And we love it when you say it, Shay. Well, welcome back. Now we're going to head into our coverage of no less than six issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths. Actually, the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossovers with the All-Star Squadron. And our ultimate goal here is to finally get up to the point where we tell another Seven Soldiers of Victory tale that occurred within the Crisis. Because we're not going to dwell on uh, these six issues, number 50 through to 55 uh, today. We're just going to hit uh, the points that sort of get into our Greg Saunders connection. And this is going to be interesting because Greg Saunders isn't going to appear in any of these. These are actually the All-Star Squadron tie-ins with Crisis on Infinite Earths 
and Roy Thomas was really outthinking himself on uh, his versions of the crisis. And uh, I have to say, he put a lot more thought into it than uh, tying in with DC than DC's uh, editorial board ever put on the future of All-Star Squadron. But that's my editorializing. Now, is there anybody out here that has never heard of Crisis on Infinite Earths? Oh, there's, there's a person over there. Well, I wasn't going to explain it, but I guess as long as there's somebody out there. Crisis on Infinite Earths was what you would call an event book. Um, I hesitate to say that it was DC's first event book because uh, there were things like uh, the Justice League Justice Society annual team-ups um, that occurred from about oh, 1963 onward to this year that we're discussing in 1985. Uh, those were justifiably events. I can also remember a uh, very interesting story that occurred in the pages of Showcase 100, written by Paul Copperberg and illustrated by Joe Staten, uh, that took all of the, or most of the characters that had appeared in the uh, previous 100 issues of Showcase, which uh, had been sort of a tryout book for DC for a number of years, uh, canceled and then had come back uh, just in time for this uh, 100th showcase, and that was in 1978, I want to say, early part of 1978, just before the DC implosion. And that was, in fact, uh, probably a dress rehearsal to Crisis. So you had uh, various characters like Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, the Barry Allen Flash, Aquaman, uh, the Atom, Adam Strange, meeting a lot of characters that you probably wouldn't think of uh, would appear, but they were uh, people that were important into DC's history and a few that weren't. Uh, you got people, things like Bat Lash and Space Ranger, Lois Lane, who had in fact started her solo career, as it were, as being Superman's girlfriend and all, in Showcase back in the 1950s. And you had just sort of pop-up appearances. There was the Teen Titans, there was Sergeant Rock. It just goes on and on and on. It's a, it's a book that's worth uh, looking into. And the best of all, it was one and done. One double issue in 1978. I think it was probably around 35, maybe 40 pages. And uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it started on one on page one and ended on the final page. Uh, no crossovers, no claims that the world will be so different now on. It was just a very fun thing to uh, to jam all of these uh, interesting characters together into one adventure. So let's go back further ahead in time. Uh, let's go up to about 1984. And by this time, DC, uh, as we know, has, has been undergoing a bit of a renaissance in the past few years, recovered from the 1978-79 uh, DC implosion. Titles like uh, Mo The New Teen Titans, which had been revived by the incomparable George Perez, and Marv Wolfman, and that had proven to be a very big hit and was uh, probably DC's most effective competition against uh, Marvel's juggernaut of the Uncanny X-Men. And that had caused a renaissance in team books 
Um, Legion of Superheroes was probably the second best. And this is the era of Paul Levitz, Levitz uh, scripting and uh, Keith Giffing lending art chores, among others. Uh, there was also other team books, such as uh, Batman and the Outsiders by Mike Barr and Jim Aparo. And, of course, there was All-Star Squadron, which uh, Roy Thomas and a bevy of artists, including Rich Buckler, Jerry Ordway, Arvell Jones, and many, many others. And by 1985, it's approaching its 50th issue with some uh, crossovers and annuals and, and other things for change. Now, why is 1985 so important? Well, it just happens to be 50 years since 1935. That means it's time for DC to celebrate its 50th anniversary in, as a comics publisher. And that was a milestone uh, because it was the first comics company to achieve such a milestone. Many had fallen off by the wayside, and uh, even though the Marvel conglomerate, uh, which had previously been Timely and Atlas, uh, still couldn't uh, mark DC's longevity in the field. What also seemed to come up when you had things like, uh, oh, All-Star Squadron, Infinity, Inc., Legion, and all of these books, uh, apparently somebody decided there was a continuity issue. But the four or five literary worlds that we had within DC's uh, publishing era, namely Earth-1, which was sort of the main Earth, then Earth-2, which uh, took, which was the Justice Society's Earth, there was Earth-3, which was an ersatz uh, world where the crime syndicate that resembled the Justice League ruled, there was an Earth-X where the Freedom Fighters, uh, the quality characters from World War II, uh, had spent the last 40-odd years fighting World War II, and then there was Earth-S, uh, which was the home of uh, the Shazam family mostly and also the Fawcett characters. And there was other things here and there that uh, were discussed as alternate worlds and such. Somebody decided that it was time for perhaps for DC to quote, streamline, unquote, its continuity. Uh, and try to create a, uh, a singular timeline from which characters that were long in the tooth, such as Superman and Batman, could, could have a sort of a re-trigger, reboot became the word. Things like uh, how do we streamline all of these characters that have different alternates and different uh, characterizations, how do we tie together it? you know, various versions of Atlantis and those sorts of things that had sort of kind of some people felt were the carbuncles holding DC back. I'd argue that those were probably the things that made DC great, for lack of a better word right now, uh, was his idea to look at alternate ideas and alternate realities. But uh, the flavor of the month was try to streamline uh, DC into a, a singular universe such as what uh, Marvel more or less had in his competition. Was this successful? I think most of us will say there was a measure of success in that the Crisis on Infinite Earths did trigger a great uh, renaissance 
in DC's ability to attract uh, high high name talent or name brand talent uh, that had been working for other uh, companies and competing for it uh, for its attention, and I do believe it has triggered a uh, a great era of creativity in that and if uh, you weren't being hung back as to you know where in superman's continuity that uh, he met Lori lamaris or when he went to college or exactly when it was he was in smallville or in dc or how many years he worked with the legion and if you started sort of at a square one kind of a operation then that would trigger some a great continuity. And of course, that did happen when John Byrne came over from Marvel. And uh, he, along with Marv Wolfman, in 1986, and uh, I, there were other characters involved. We tend to call this the Byrne era. I would like to call it the Byrne and Others era of Superman in creating the, the triangular books. Uh, three or four monthly titles that would really... Uh, put Superman back to a basics and uh, allow his story to actually be retold for a modern era. And presumably this would happen with other uh, characters as well, as it did with Wonder Woman under, of course, George Perez's title. But that's for the future and after Crisis. Um, there were other things that came along of Green Arrow's Longbow Hunters, Hawkworld, um, uh, the Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One, the Boahaha Justice League, and those sorts of things. So the idea, you know, and speaking of Justice League, Justice League was also part of a, t a team renaissance pre-crisis in that it, uh, it sort of rejigged uh, how it had looked over, you know, 25 odd years into a more teenage, uh, more youthful sort of a cast, what, what we now know of as Justice League Detroit, but when it, in that fact was a continuation of Justice League of America. And, and of course, there was a lot of complaints about that as well. So DC just decided that 1985 would be the year of the crisis and also, to be fair, the year of who's who, in which... Uh, Many, many creators would assemble to tell people uh, what exactly DC's publishing history was over that past 50 years. And in taking the other line of was the uh, streamlining successful, and I would say, but aside from the creativity, the streamlining was not successful. While we did have the rebirth of the titles that I just mentioned, the other titles that had been clipping along really well started to have issues. Number one, New Teen Titans, with uh, Wolfman and Perez heading off to other directions, uh, Wolfman carrying on the Teen Titans title, plus also working with Superman, caused him some creative issues. Perez left the book entirely, leaving it to other artists. So that book sort of, well, it was very successful and carried on for several years, sort of went off track for where it had been from 1980 to 1985. Legion uh, had its continuity, what with uh, the importance of, of the Superman mythos to the Legion's own history. 
sort of had that stripped away from itself. They tried to do little continuity patches, such as the Superboy Pocket Universe. But a lot of that uh, didn't seem to take, and Legion seemed to, uh, seemed to lose a lot of traction. But for my money, for what I'm concerned with, and what we're concerned here on the podcast, it's about the vigilante, and we're talking about everything but him. Uh, my concern was where the Justice Society and Infinity Inc. fit when all of a sudden you were taking the Golden Age versions of so many characters virtually out of their continuity that the All-Star Squadron, JSA, and Infinity Inc., and uh, all of the other Golden Age superheroes suddenly had. And suddenly their histories are all redefined and stripped out. Uh, those that had Earth, supposedly Earth-1 versions, such as my friend the Vigilante, were sort of rolled into a singular uh, sort of aspect, which tended to take a lot of stories out of continuity. Maybe that mattered, maybe it didn't. But in many cases with a character like Vigilante, it didn't matter because DC forgot to use him anyway. And of course, the rest of it just got very, very confusing. Um, I think probably we all know that probably the worst offender, uh, offender was the continuity plagues that hit Hawkman after the uh, the ongoing version of the uh, the great Tim Truman miniseries Hawkworld came along. And all of a sudden we had uh, this issue with uh, the Hawkman of the All-Star Squadron JSA era of the 1940s sort of being impacted with this hot new Hawkman that DC wanted to introduce. And through the, uh, the 1960s to 1980 version of Carter, Katar Hall, the Thanagarian Hawkman, into flux as well. And where did all this history hit? And as that started to play out, we started to run into things like Zero Hour, which tried to do continuity patches and, and runs from here and there. And DC's continuity just seemed to get, while the creativity was great, and there were a lot of things, you know, tr- tremendous uh, things happening, and their sales warranted that they were not wrong. You know, those people who sort of grew up with a certain continuity seem to have been left by the wayside. You know, for the most part, I, you know, continuity is something that, for, for my part, is something that happens in my head. I don't need anybody explaining it. And if there's something missing in my out of there, well, I don't need a whole new miniseries and I don't need a company restructuring itself in order to satisfy my needs because at that point in time, I'm heading into my 30s with mortgages, jobs, student loans and children. And quite frankly, I'm not the buying public. In that point, DC was doing what I believe comics should always be doing. And that's aiming toward its youth. Because the youth will take care of itself as it ages. But uh, with comics, and we'll see how this works out in the future. I don't believe DC was um, doing a good job of not only not attracting that youth as... uh, sales and marketing and how the whole comics system worked out and uh, along with the balance of trying to keep the people who had grown up with it 
happy as well. You know, and, and marketers and balancers and, and people who balance economies and, you know, even right into politics are always trying to do this trade-off of are we uh, ignoring one set of demographics by trying to cater to another. But at any rate, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths was a thing. Now, the series itself, the 12-part miniseries that ran through the 12 months of 1985, creatively was a success. It was a good story that ran from one story to the end. And for the most part, you could read this crisis without having to go to a lot of tie-ins. But that, of course, is not what DC wanted to do. They wanted to make sure to try to tie as many of their titles together with the crisis in order to tell a larger story. And that's where things sort of went off the rails with crisis because I don't believe the planning was all that it was cracked up to be. I think they played a lot of lip service to planning and I don't believe they were talking to all of the uh, editorial boards on the same level of table playing field. And that was especially true with Roy Thomas. And we're going to just stick with that idea with All-Star Squadron. And I won't go too far afield into the others. Um, when Crisis starts, we do bring in JSA uh, characters such as the Golden Age and Earth 2 Superman. And we do bring All-Star Squadron characters such as Firebrand, who, as you remember, is a character created by Roy Thomas for the ongoing series of All-Star Squadron. And by July, I want to say, and uh, we ha have to finally see where Crisis, how it's going to tie in with the All-Star Squadron title itself. And that just very ha handily happens to be uh, the five-year anniversary or the 50th anniversary of the... Uh, the All-Star Squadron's issue, All-Star Squadron 50. That was a ham-handed way of saying it. So we'll, we will start with that, with All-Star Squadron 50. And just briefly touch down on that, before we head into 51, which has a little bit more to do with the, the history of Vigilante. Now we'll just make a brief stop in All-Star Squadron 50, although we will bring up the story. Uh, well, the reason I'm doing all of these briefings in between is because it, there's a, a longer story going along with lots of little arcs and threads going into different directions, and that sort of become an All-Star Squadron trademark. It's something that, uh, a, a storytelling technique that Roy Thomas had brought over from Marvel and in many ways had pioneered in uh, books like the Avengers over at Marvel as a sort of Stan Lee's heir apparent and as the editor-in-chief sort of uh, having lots of little uh, plots and lots of little dangling sub threads going along that hopefully would get tied up into a certain part which makes All-Star Squadron a natural tie-in for Crisis uh, so you have to realize of course in All-Star Squadron we have our characters are appearing in about 1942. To be specific, April 1st, 1942, as we tie off. 
book is going to start to move into at a point where most of the characters inside of it uh, come to know the crisis or come to be involved in it, such as how Firebrand had uh, met Harbinger at the Monitor. And that's probably a good time to start with the cover. All-Star Squadron 50, we have the 50th DC Bullet logo at the top, and the great trade dress that says Special Crisis Crossover. And uh, we are at October 1985, which was actually on the stands in July of 1985. And uh, question, which of these heroes will have their lives forever changed by the coming of Harbinger? And Harbinger is a character that we have come to know through the first half of the Crisis on Infinite Earth series, who has uh, been a sort of a summoner for a, a monolith character known as the Monitor, who uh, has existed in a satellite uh, monitoring the Earth and, and planning for how this uh, Crisis on Earth is going to play out. And uh, we've got one of these great Marvel-style uh, lots of characters on the cover and all sort of rotating around Harbinger as she impacts their lives. And remember, these again are the 1942 versions of the Spectre, Liberty Bell, the Black Condor, Phantom Lady, Johnny Quick, Commander Steel, Dr. Fate in his half-helmet mask, a little uh, lesser-powered Dr. Fate at this point in time, the aforementioned Firebrand, the Hawkman, of 1942 slash Earth 2, Amazing Man, another character created for All-Star Squadron by Roy, and Alan Scott Green Lantern, of course, which is the Golden Age and original recipe of Green Lantern. We open, as I said, April 1st, 1942 with Hawkman, because he must appear in all All-Star Squadron issues, such as the decree of uh, Roy Thomas. And he's coming to the JSA meeting. And this is a story that in great uh, detail is uh, taking place also within a story that appeared in All-Star Scom Comics in the same era of 1942. And that is going to be the story called Shanghai Into Space, which has was published in uh, October, November of 1942 on sale on August 21st, 1942 in the 10 cent All-Star Comics number 13. Now just think of that. Now we've come to know this, if you've been reading All-Star Squadron regularly, that Roy is always going to tie up stories and continuity from that era, <laughs> which, let's face it, was his youth. Uh, Roy was only two years old when this came out, but he quickly became a fan of the Justice Society lifelong. As this, as I type this, probably the world's greatest living authority on the golden age of DC Comics and uh, the Justice Society. And of course, uh, writing the Justice Society within All-Star Squadron was his lifelong dream. I mean, he, he made his bones and he made his career at Marvel. But uh, this was the payoff for him. And of course, we have several characters, uh, several members of the Justice Society who are appearing at a Justice Society meeting, including um, Hawkman, as I said, 
Be patient with me. I'm actually reading from my own copy of this. I'm not reading from digital or anything. I'm reading from the comic that I bought at the time. We've got the Golden Age Wonder Woman, Johnny Thunder, because we have to keep a watch on him, Dr. Midnight, who is probably the babysitter for Johnny Thunder, the original Ted Knight Starman, the Spectre, the Wesley Dodds Sandman, the Al Pratt version of the Atom, and I believe that's it. The, uh, the JSA at this point in time are overcome by various means by agents of, of course, Adolf Hitler. So they are uh, basically captured and taken to uh, engine, the, uh, the lab of Engineer Gutsten. And these Nazis are so good at uh, establishing laboratories and spy networks right within... Uh, you know, wartime America makes you wonder if the JSA was doing their job or not. And uh, basically, what's going to happen is what had happened in the uh, the All Star comics of 1942, and this is uh, he's weaving this very skillfully into our ongoing story. And uh, the each JSAer is put into a rocket and sent into space. Now, if you can overcome everybody from Dr. Fate to the Spectre to Wonder Woman to even Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt, why do you have to send them in rockets? Why can't you just find ways to kill them? We don't want that to happen. We want to enjoy them into perpetuity. And this is where the story weaves Harbinger, who actually sends the rockets into hyperspace and this is sort of a hyper time kind of a thing and of course this isn't a part of the uh, the original story this is just something Roy is adding to it but now let's go away from this and we go to Commander Steel and he is doing a spy mission in Berlin and he's at the Brandenburg Gate and of course this is wartime Berlin Commander Steel, as a non-magical character, cannot be overcome by the Spear of Destiny, but he can do behind-the-scenes origins. And of course, whenever you've got a solo character who has a recent history, like Commander Steel, he has to think about his whole life while he's performing this mission. And uh, he recalls his origin, which uh, had actually taken place not too many years ago, in a 1979 version of his own um, his own book, Steel the Indestructible Man. Of course, uh, Commander Steel has been uh, retroactively uh, brought into All-Star Squadron by Roy, since uh, nobody was doing anything with him at the time when uh, Roy started the book. The Commander is also overcome by the Nazi guards because, let's face it, he's on their own territory. And just to jump ahead and tie up this uh, steel version, uh, steel portion of the story, uh, Harbinger interferes again, and through her uh, transporting powers through dimensions, uh, Commander Steel escapes and finds himself on Earth One. And the reason that is a, an issue because in Justice League of America. The Steel, uh, that is a member of the Detroit League, as we uh, we know it now, is happens to be Commander Steel's grandson. 
And of course, that'll lead to stories that we're not going to cover. That'll lead into the, the very last JLA-JSA team-up that happens uh, within the pages of the Justice League Detroit uh, story, Justice League of America, actually, together with uh, Infinity Inc. as well. So let's move on to another portion of the story, and we've got the uh, the usual obligatory buy bonds rally, because this is what we do with our All-Star Squadron members. We have them sell war bonds. And in particular, at a, at a uh, certain one of these rallies, we have, uh, was hosted by the New York Mayor Fiello Lagardia, if I didn't mangle that name too badly. And our guests here are Robot Man, the Shining Knight. Hey, a soldier of victory. Yeah, yes, there's a reason for me to be covering this. Our Man, who has recently recovered from uh, a trip to Earth-X. Uh, Tarantula, Amazing Man. And Dr. Fate. Actually, I have this wrong. Dr. Fate uh, seems to not have been involved in the Shanghai Into Space storyline. Uh, apologize for that he is at this rally as is a guy who looks a lot like him with a blue costume and a lot of gold around him and that's the guardian uh, being the guardian of the newsboy legion and we have a couple of people named firebrand although they are not gussied up in that uh, lieutenant uh, lieutenant Ru i believe it's a lieutenant i'm not, not sure if he's a lieutenant or a lieutenant commander um, is rod riley who is injured at uh, Pearl Harbor and had previously acted as uh, the superhero Firebrand is talking to his sister who has taken over his mantle and uh, is of course a member a vital member of the All-Star Squadron a core member uh, shall we say and she is actually working uh, behind the scenes inside the uh at the uh the war bonds rally in the kitchen she's helping to serve up the goodies that they're going to be served at this rally dance uh, clam bake and that such and at the end of this scene we see a scene that we have seen before and this is more of roy's skillful retying into a story that we've seen only six months ago in crisis on infinite earth number one and that is when firebrand meets harbinger just as she is using her uh, fire powers to light a gas stove. Uh, ask your parents if you don't know about lighting a gas stove. It's just something you had to do at the time. If you didn't, couldn't do it with a match, I guess you were going to have some, uh, some very cold hors d'oeuvres for your war bond rally. And Harbinger spirits uh, Firebrand off to the, the satellite meeting at the monitor that we with the monitor satellite that we've seen earlier. Now, as Firebrand disappears, we also have the appearance of Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters. And Uncle Sam doesn't, hasn't come alone. He's brought Phantom Lady, uh, the Ray, the Black Condor, and even Plastic Man. And there's a reason that they've been, they've come along. They have discovered that uh, now Uncle Sam has been doing missions back and forth to Earth-X. And we've seen some of that happen in prior issues of All-Star Squadron. And he now needs some raw recruits to go back to Earth-X because uh, he's discovered another nefarious plot. And along the way, he seems to gather characters such as Alias the Spider, the Manhunter and his dog Thor, Midnight, the Jester, the Human Bomb, 
Doll Man, and the Flying Blackhawks. And they're headed off to Earth-X, and we all know that we're probably never going to see them again in All-Star Squadron. All things being equal, since we know from a 1973 JLA-JSA team-up that uh, they were trapped on a planet in a perpetual World War II, which it took the combined forces of all three groups to finally end. And then I think we come to probably the highlight of this issue, the marriage of Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell. They have eloped, ran off, gone to the Justice of the Peace, and uh, we're going to see much more of them as things come along. And just as they are headed off for their honeymoon, who do they run off but Alan Scott, Green Lantern. And of course Harbinger comes along and mucks up with their, uh, their jam, and they end up on another earth as well and in another reality and we're not going to know what that is and because that's how comics work everybody has very confused about this uh, whole shanghai into space issue the disappearance of the freedom fighters the disappearance of libby alan scott and johnny quick we will know all of this next issue but meanwhile, in the last panel, and I draw your attention to this because it's very important to what is going to happen. Who could possibly know what this future and this strange crisis across time and space is going to bring? Perhaps the small flying microphone unseen overhead could answer our man's desperate questions. But it prefers not to. So next issue, our crisis crossover continues as the All-Stars will face the Monster Society of Evil in All-Star 51. So we begin again with another special Crisis crossover edition of All-Star Squadron, this thing, issue 51, which uh, scripted by Roy Thomas and art by Mike Clark and Arvel Jones. On the cover, we have four All-Star Squadron members in chains and they are under the domination of four villains who you'd really have to know your golden age history or have been uh, immersed in reprints of the early 1970s to know who they were and i'll be honest at the time i did not i needed a refresher but i knew that all of them had appeared in various reprints as uh, dc uh, especially uh, under the tutelage of e nelson bridwell had run several reprint titles such as Secret Origins, I'm struggling here, Wanted, and also uh, through the super spectacular era of the DC had also run a lot of these reprints as bonus features or as backups. Which I have to say was part of my tutelage and part of the, one of the, some of the reasons that I ever became such a fan of the Golden Age era. The captive heroes left to right are Sandy the Golden Boy, uh, our half-helmeted Dr. Fate, Our Man, and Hawk Girl. As we open the story, a sailor is uh, escorting a young lady down the street, and we see a one of the gargoyle-type statue that suddenly comes to life, crawls from its pedestal, and scares the bejeebers out of the sailor and, and his date. That character is Oom, who we know as a villain of the Spectre. 
And the next thing we see is that strange flying microphone again, which I didn't describe probably in, well enough. It is sort of an old-time uh, radio-type microphone, the type with the, uh, the basket uh, mic at both ends, sort of flying on a boom with uh, a propeller, a very Sikorsky helicopter type of thing, which, of course, is uh, advanced technology for its time because the helicopter's only being an experimental thing at that point in time. But imagine, it's only the size of a microphone. And there's a voice that booms out of the uh, this strange craft. And it talks to Oom. Like a big piece of gray granite, Oom yells out, Oh, who's there? And out of the, uh, micro out of the uh, flying microphone, we get, I am your colossal Creighton. Me, Mr. Mind. I'm nothing, just a funny flying metal thing. And, of course, we have to recount that Oom is, in fact, a villain of the Spectre who has been defeated. But at this point in time, Mr. Mind is more concerned in recruiting Oom. Mr. Mind, try to remember my name, won't you? You'll see, after finding the Moonstone, I journeyed from here from another dimension. The Moonstone is the rock that is used to control Oom. And Mr. Mind seems to have it. Uh, floating along with his strange craft. I journeyed here from another dimension. Another dimension, remember that, folks. To offer charter membership in a little society I'm putting together. So they uh, travel off together uh, before the police arrive. And what comes onto the scene but Dr. Fate and our man. Uh, Dr. Fate carrying our man. And Dr. Fate at this point in time is kind of uh, less a magician and a mystical character than he has been uh, depowered somewhat and turned into more into a low-rent uh, Superman. I don't know what the rationale was at the time for that point uh, for doing this. Uh, I guess they just felt that uh, Superman was selling better than uh, strange characters with mystical powers, which is more of a 1930s kind of a thing so it's we're we've got a era of transition at any rate dr fate and our man are traveling down to the old uh, justice society headquarters and remember they were kidnapped and what did they see sitting in their headquarters but um and sitting around the table is a character by the name of doctor nope nope he's not a doctor he's a mister mister who be very careful. There is also a Sandman villain by the name of Nightshade. No relation to the uh, Charlton character Nightshade, who we've only recently met in Crisis. And we also have Nyola, the High Priestess of the Aztec God Talak, who is holding hostage one of her old enemies, Hawk Girl. And I should mention that Mr. Who is a uh, villain of Dr. Fate, as uh, he's about to relate to our man. What's up, Fate? You know who that old geezer is? Who is he, anyway? Who? That's what I asked. Who is he? That's right. What's right? I still don't know who he is. I told you, he's who? My old enemy, Mr. Who. Oh, him. Yes, this is the Abbott Costello routine, which does nothing but get Mr. Who irate and getting him to yell. 
And of course, uh, all of the yelling and the caterwauling really upsets Oom, who starts to uh, become threatening. And just as the Naola's attention is distracted, Hawk Girl takes a bite out of crime, right into Naola's hand. Now, of course, uh, Hawk Girl is a little helpless when Naola decides to take her super strength and slap her across the room. Uh, Dr. Fate and Mr. Who start to go at it. Mr. Who is, uh, has no, uh, has a bit of super strength that can rival Dr. Fate, but, uh, Fate knows a few handholds of himself. Our man starts to head into a fight with Nightshade, who controls, uh, plant and animal life, sort of like a earlier day poison ivy. And finally, Oom gets into the, uh, the, the picture, who takes Dr. Fate out. And uh, Neola manages to get uh, Hawk Girl under control, even as she's uh, cheering them on, giving them encouragement. And finally, the next thing you know, uh, we have more or less the scene that we had on the cover with our heroes in chains. And uh, those four villains that I did not name earlier, of course. Who? Who? Uh, Oom, Neola, and the Nightshade. And we haven't yet run across Sandy the And suddenly Mr. Mind decides to show his hand, or shall we say, his microphone. And uh, let's face it, uh, at this point in time, Roy isn't trying to uh, keep the lid on the mystery. We all know who Mr. Mind is. He's that super intelligent worm that has played Captain Marvel on his own Earth, uh, Earth-S, better known as Earth-Shazam, because we're not supposed to be calling him Captain Marvel, are we? Marvel. So the microphone uh, decides to let Hawk Girl in on the in on its exposition, just like it's uh, running a radio show, so why not tell you? After all, the JSA is really part of the reason I'm visiting this small planet. Hawk Girl asks, well, why are you visiting Earth? I'm slumming, actually. You see, people never mind what they really look like. I live in a vast world in another dimension. Yes, he's going into his voice because I forgot about it in the first place. Nice place. Boring beyond belief. And I've amused myself by monitoring Earth's radio broadcast, which I pick up through the ether. And remember, at this point in time, radio, regular radio broadcasting is only probably about 23 years old. Oh, do I mention that my name is Mr. Mind, and I'm the absolute ruler of my world? Well, I am. Anyway, in my royal laboratory, I've enjoyed many an hour listening to your radio programs. The Mysteries. And now, another tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. The so-called soap operas. Whatever soap is. And now, our gal Sunday... The story that asks the question, Can this girl from a mining town in the West find happiness as the wife of a wealthy and titled Englishman? And we see Mr. Mind sobbing towards this. And the comedy shows. Don't open that closet, McGee! And of course, that's the Fibber and McGee Molly show. And yes, most especially the comedy shows. And then there's one of your radio comedy stars I like better than any other. I've simply got to meet him. Why, I've even heard how he entertained most of your population 
while your Earth was being invaded by Martians, whatever they are. So I built the Mind Tripper, the flying machine you see before you. Must be slowing up. It took me till after lunch. And it kicked into the worm warp drive. Earth, here I come. And we see this flying microphone with its twin uh, helicopter propellers heading out through the cosmos. And of course they have to run through and hit Harbinger, who is uh, still in the process of, uh, shall we say, abducting or at least recruiting Firebrand. And uh, hitting that uh, certain bit of a warp knocks Mr. Minescraft out of whack and into another Earth. A hole between dimensions, just what I'd been searching for. By tracing their energy trail back, I found... Has Mr. Mine found? Hooray for Hollywood, where you're terrific if you're even good. And yes, of course, he lands at the Hollywood sign. And finally find the mysterious man the mansion where my matchless machinery had located my comedy idol. Oh joy, oh rapture, I'm finally going to meet him. Even as I flew into an upstairs window, I heard my hero being lectured to as per usual by the other one. You see, the mess we're in just proves the old saying that for every lie you tell, you have to invent twenty more. Twenty more? Yes. Well, and I think I'm the guy who can do it, too. And there he was, sitting in the big chair, alone in the dark. But then how was he talking to the other guy? Charlie, you must force yourself to tell the truth. Yeah? Yes. Why? Why? I asked you first. And a horrible dread began to creep over a gnawing suspicion. You see, Charlie, it's wrong to tell a lie, even a white lie. Oh, I don't bother with those white lies. Mine are all in Technicolor. And when I moved my microphone to my idol's mouth, those suspicions were concerned. Speak, boy, speak. My hero wasn't doing the talking at all. Instantly, I followed the voices to the nearby room. Why, Charlie, don't you know there's even honor among thieves? Oh, I don't know. I think they're as bad as everybody else. And there I learned the last a terrible truth. Yes, I thought you might like that new routine, Mr. Sarnoff. I plan to use it on the show one of these first Sundays. It, Edgar Bergen, the other guy on the radio program, was the real Charlie McCarthy. And the comedy star I'd worship from afar was only a wooden dummy. Yes, folks, Mr. Mind has run into... None other than the real-life radio stars of the 1930s, the ventriloquist Edgar Bergen, and his uh, dummy, as it were, Charlie McCarthy, who had become uh, great stars on the radio networks and in an age before television. And yes, Edgar Bergen was a ventriloquist on the radio. Well, what can I say? It was. People believed it. And you have to say, for Edgar Bergen's sake, no one saw his lips move. Now, just for you kids out there, Edgar Bergen was also the father of a woman you may have grown up with, or, may, or even in reruns, 
and that is Candace Bergen, best known as Murphy Brown. That was a sitcom that uh, ran through the 1980s and 90s, and I believe was uh, briefly uh, revived around 2016 or so in response to the election of Donald Trump. So the Bergen family does have uh, quite a bit of entertainment in its genes. But back to Mr. Mind. I'll admit it. It was devast- I was devastated. Nothing to do now but pursue my second choice. And that second choice was... And yes, Mr. Mind goes off to the, the, the headquarters of the Justice Society of America. If I can't pal around with Charlie McCarthy, I wanted to pal around with a JSA, who I'd also heard over the radio. So I flew here at top speed, even picked up a newscast on the way that said they were having a special meeting tonight. But when I located the place, it was deserted. And remember, they've been kidnapped. Hello? Hello? Doesn't anybody on this world want to roll out the welcome mat for a visitor from another dimension? This kind of rejection's enough to turn a peace-loving sovereign into a mass murderer. Okay, if they didn't want to be hospitable, I'll form my own society with an even fancier name. But it'll need some members. Perhaps that book lying open on the table which, of course, is the JSA casebook. And that's how Mr. Mind learns of the existence of people like Nightshade, Mr. Mr. Who, Oom, and Niala. And, of course, brings them to the Justice Society headquarters where he's ran into both Hawkgirl, Dr. Fate, and Our Man, who are looking for what has happened to the JSA, who, of course, have been kidnapped by the Nazis and sent into outer space. When who should appear but a rescuer? None other than another one of those great uh, Golden Age tropes, the junior sidekick, Sandy the Golden Boy, who is uh, the fighting partner of Wesley, the Wesley Dodds, Sandman. And this is, of course, after Sandman has given up the gas mask and gone to more to the superhero tights era. And uh, sort of where uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby have turned him into their version of Batman and Robin. Still a great era, different from the gas mask uh, era of uh, the Sandman very much. And of course, we're long here before the, uh, the, uh, the Joe Simon Jack Kirby revival of the 1970s of, let's for lack of a better word, the Earth One Sandman, and then finally the Neil Gaiman Sandman, which is uh, all over Netflix, if you didn't know. Now, Hawkgirl, Our Man, and Dr. Fate, of course, will cheer Sandy on, as hopefully this is the great diversion that they need, at least for Our Man, to rip uh, Erasmus's living plant out of the... Uh, Earth, as it were, or at least the floor where it has rooted itself. And we got a good Donnybrook of a fight, fight, fight uh, amongst our, uh, between our four villains and our four heroes. When Oom finds himself into a stalemate fighting Dr. Fate, he pulls out his, uh, Oom pulls a heretofore unseen trick, at least in this story, out of the woodwork, he transports both himself and Dr. Fate to the moon, 
which, where uh, Dr. Fate will run out of breath, and that is probably about the only thing that can stop him at this point in time. Well, even though Sandy, Our Man, and Hawk Girl have escaped the headquarters, uh, Neola, Sandman, or see, Neola, Nightshade, rather, and Mr. Who are quite happy with themselves. And on our final page, we cut way back to Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, and Alan Scott, Green Lantern, who remember they have also bounced off a harbinger. They are thrown into another new dimension and where they see a threat that only Alan Scott can recognize coming at them. And of course that is a very angry eyes of anger man by the name that Alan knows as Captain Marvel. And our next uh, story will be in issue 50. Oh wait, 52. Now that will mean nothing to DC fans of the future. And as we go into the meaningless number of 52 that means nothing to DC, we have another Roy Thomas, Arvel Jones, and Alfredo Alcala joint here. I'm not going to spend much time at all in this issue because it hasn't got much to do with the Mr. Mind and the Monster Society storyline that I've been trying to follow. That was the whole reason I gone into this uh, long drawn out affair uh, let's just say that uh, Scott Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell do and guess encounter Captain Marvel and then they do not have their uh, <laughs> the fight that 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 the uh, last panel seemed to indicate on it just seems that Cap is a little more interested in something that was beyond and uh, and a little worried about some shadow demons that have seemed to have been dragged in along by the Earth-2 superheroes into Cap's uh, world or universe of Earth-S. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to dwell too much on there because nothing happens in there regarding the uh, Mr. Mind subplot that we've been following. Other than that, there's one very interesting uh, take in that Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell finally have their honeymoon night as you might guess, which they have been denied so far, in none other than Billy Batson's bed. And which we see uh, Liberty Bell wake up wearing <coughs> Billy Batson's shirt. His red sweater with the yellow collar and waistbands and trim. The one we have seen in countless Captain Marvel and Shazam stories which of course is uh, as Billy Batson is a boy it's a little bit uh, small for her I just wanted to point that out <laughs> this issue also has the first chapter that goes back into our adaptation of the Shanghai into space or as Roy as uh, subtexted it shanghai into hyperspace and of course it's the chapter dealing with hawkman uh where the art is actually by name quite al delinger's i'm going to guess on that utilizing the golden age drawings of none other than joe kubert so this is going to be a familiar thing that you're going to be seeing in all-star squadron uh as they uh as they adapt uh the various solo chapters which was the format of all-star comics you had a framing sequence uh, which set up the threat 
and the characters would somehow be split off into separate chapters. Not so much team-ups, but separate chapters. Later on in the uh, in the run of All-Stars comics, we'd see more in the line of team-ups, uh, sort of the Gardner-Fox formula. Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I just love saying that. Oh, you again? I guess that's just to remind you whose podcast this is. Yes, this is indeed a Vigilante podcast. And uh, if you came in expecting the Vigilante, you're going to be disappointed. However, I am getting to, part, to the part of the podcast where we decide, where I decide, why I have chosen to do what I have done in this podcast. And we are looking at All-Star Squadron 53. Uh, credits uh, for this is Roy Thomas, Mike Clark, and Arvell Jones. And we see what's going to happen here on the cover. We have uh, Niala, Niala, the Aztec goddess, and Nightshade are attacking, oh, a guy named Superman. Has anybody ever heard of him? Of course, this is the Golden Age variety. And on one side, of course, is the giant size Mr. Who, don't call me Doctor. And off to the right-hand side, we have those Marvel-style um, open-mouthed, shocked heads, those disembodied heads that we always like to have sometimes, just to let you know that there's other people in this book besides Supes. Uh, we have Hawk Girl, Amazing Man, and Robot Man, both slack-jawed and agape. But way up here in the corner, up here by the Indicia box, right next to the Comics Code Authority, is the grinning head of Mr. Mind. May not exactly be to scale with the other hands, by the way. Mr. Mind's just a little guy. Worm-like little guy. So as we open up, we find that we are our worlds are in turmoil. And of course, we've been bouncing around the planets, but we're back here on Earth 2, over top of a prison wall. So supposedly sometime we're on the East Coast in the New York area. And uh, Niala, uh, sorry, Niola. Have I been saying Niala? It's Niola, uh, the high priestess of the Aztec race, is uh, bringing down thunder inside the prison walls and zapping a prisoner. Not so much uh, sort of to kill him, but uh, at least to inspire him to run away. And a prison guard. And which leads to a bit of a discourse between the two that the prison guard is supposed to be protected inside these walls. Um, to which quick draw prison guard whips out his uh, sidearm, only to be find he's being shot at by a giant plant, which of course is being ridden over the wall by nightshade. Did I mention we're in a rainstorm? Well, of course we are. We're, we have lightning, we might as well have rain. The prisoner, while the prisoner and the guard notice the Sikorsky unit that Mr. Mind is piloting, and the prisoner very astutely realizes that that's the seems to be the brains of the operation. And somewhere in between panels, he asks for directions for a particular prisoner to the cell of a particular prisoner that he's looking for. Well, the prisoner has nothing else to uh, to do, so he points up to a cell, kind of uh, shocked as to why they're asking for this particular inmate. Uh, by now, Mr. Who has caught up and is smashing some prison cells, 
and the rest of the prison guards have gotten along and they're doing their best to unload their pistols, but it's not doing much good. And, uh, pretty soon, though, Mr. Who is affected by something that hits his jaw. Something uh, way up where the giant size Mr. Who is up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, of course. It's Superman. Well, let's see now. A giant, a green man, a flying microphone, and a cheerleader in skivvies. Well, you read that. This, you know this is a Roy Thomas uh, word balloon. And uh, Superman realizes this isn't your normal everyday jailbreak. Makes very uh, quick work of Nightshade's tentacles. Nyola keeps the lightning coming. But fairly soon, after another McFighty fight McFight Stein, and a lot more bending of steel by both Mr. Who and Soups, who, by the way, can bend steel with his bare hands, uh, also, of course, realizes who is in charge of the operation, uh, tries to grab the, uh, the little Sikorsky unit of Mr. Mind, when all of a sudden, all of it pops out of thin air. So this is when Soups has to ask the guards, goes, okay, who did they spring? And quick guard, who is it? Luther? The Lightning Master? By the way, these are villains of the uh, Golden Age Superman. You may not have heard of Lightning Master. Luther, probably you have. Uh, somewhere in their line, Superman's jaw goes slack and agape. Goes, why in blazes would crooks with powers like this, those four break into prison? To find free somebody like him. Him! We turn the border corner and find out that uh, he's not the only one surprised. Mr. Huniola Nightshade are, are all shocked to find that Mr. Mind has uh, risked their time and efforts to spring, wait for it, the dummy! He, that isn't even a he, mind. That's an it. Yes, it's the dummy who we last saw, uh, or at least heard in this podcast, in the very first Seven Soldiers of Victory uh, adventure. As uh, when he, in his first run-in with a man named uh, the Vigilante. Oh, that brings it around. It all comes back to the Vigilante. And, of course, that dummy is that little bizarre man, sort of a cross between the Penguin and Charlie McCarthy, who Mr. Mind has been so disappointed to, to find out uh, was not a real human being. And within his me mechanical mind tripper, which has brought him from his own dimension and which conceals his true worm shape, even uh, from his elactant alleys, Mr. Mind exalts. Of course he's alive, you small-minded hoodlums. True, he's not my radio idol, Charlie McCarthy, but at least he doesn't need a human hand up his spine to walk, talk, and commit crimes. <clears throat> well, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, Mr. Mind. Though that is qualifications to be a provincial Alberta cabinet minister. <clears throat> and the dummy is very exultant and extremely happy to find out he has been sprung. You better believe it, the dummy is no man's dummy. Not even yours. So you will you are, people. Anyway, and why did you spring me out of that hooskal? Not that I'm not that grateful. And Mr. Mind introduces himself to the other members of the Monster Society of Evil. And 
and that they are out to conquer this planet that we know of as Earth 2. And of course, there's a little bar that tells us we first saw the dummy in Leading Comics number 141. Well, you have, huh? Well, microphone head, you might have to stand in line. There's a couple of go-getters in Europe and Japan already trying to conquer the world, or hadn't you heard? To which Mr. Mine goes, Hitler? Mussolini? Tojo? Rank amateurs, each and every one of them, my friend. Okay, so Mr. Mine's, uh... Got a bit of a, a conqueror complex. So why do we have the the uh, the dummy here? Is it just hero worship? Does Mister Mind have a predilection for wood? And I have to say, in this point, we have often uh, talked about the dummy as being just a I don't know a little person, an undergrown person, who just happens to have the resemblance of a ventriloquist dummy but uh, here roy thomas is talking like this is an actual piece of wood that has come to life makes you wonder why he was in a prison cell and why no why nobody else uh, decided to do something else with him or to, to investigate this that's not our experience from uh, reading future dummy stories in action comics against the vigilante but okay as uh the dummy uh, starts to digest Mr. Mind's world-conquering plan. Goes, okay, short, bright, and vulcanized. This ex-kidnapper's in. Whether your game's extortion or empire building, but uh, may I make a few suggestions? Stay away from supergroups. They gang up on ya. And you gotta change that name. Monster Society of Evil. Ugh. Number three, uh, Mr. Mind, uh, finally... Shows his face through the bubble, goes, I changed my mind. You may not offer any suggestions. It's my society, my rules. And pardon me, I'm off to plot our next strike. So that leaves us the extant monster society, the dummy against with his new compatriots, wherein Nightshade reveals that they are planning a little rebellion against Mr. Mind. And we switch over to the site of the Trilon and Perisphere, which, of course, are the uh, site of the 1939-1940 World's Fair, wherein these real-life buildings built for the fair have been assumed by the All-Star Squadron as their base of operations for the duration of the war. Superman lands on the ramp outside the Perisphere just to find Winged Victory. Of all the All-Star Squadrons, people to be uh, greeted by. It's the Shining Knight's horse. To which Superman basically greets the horse with a decidedly un-1940s phrase of, How's it hanging, Winged Victory? Winged just says nay, unfortunately doesn't show us how it's hanging. And Superman then meets Gernsback, who is the robot butler. Uh, the, from the old Westinghouse exhibit, uh, the real-life Westinghouse exhibit. By the way, if you're from Pittsburgh, uh, I have actually seen the Westinghouse Electro in the, I believe it's the uh, the Heinz Center, uh, Heinz Center Museum in, in Pittsburgh. So Superman enters the uh, the meeting rooms of the Perisphere, and we see Shining Knight, of course. Uh, with the, so this is the store with the horse at the door. Uh, we see Sandy the Golden Boy, the Tarantula, Amazing Man, Hawk Girl, Our Man, 
Robot Man and Superman meets for the first time a fella by the name of Dr. Occult who seems to look a lot like Superman and of course there's a reason why both Occult and Superman were created by Jerry Siegel and the artist Joe Schuster. Superman, Hawkgirl and Sandy are quick to compare notes on this new monster society of e evil and as he shakes hands with the tarantula uh, Supes tells him about his what reason for his visit here. Since the dummy's an old sparring partner of the vigilante, I thought I ought to tell him through the All-Stars. But these days, bad news travels faster than a speeding bullet, too. And this is also where Sandy uh, brings Supes up to speed, that not only do we have a monster society, but we have the Justice Society missing. And as we know, they have been shanghaied into space. And of course, we have a page full of flashbacks, which we're not going to cover. Um, in the middle of the meeting, interestingly enough, Vigilante has not showed up to this meeting. So I guess uh, Supes is going to have to write a note or send a telegram. Probably the best thing is to put an ad in the newspaper and stuff will find it. And then he'll make a call to the radio station and ask for Greg Saunders. But we do get a, uh incoming call from the Crimson Avenger. Crimson Avenger here. I'm with the rest of the seven soldiers of victory at our meeting place. Now this is going to lead, of course, into the next SSOV adventure which will be coming up very shortly on this podcast. Don't you just love this tight continuity, the way Roy does this? Well, now that the soldiers have been notified, Robot Man suggests that uh, a few other of the uh, alumni of the All-Stars also be contacted, and we see Sargon the Sorcerer, Mr. Terrific, the Golden Age Batman, Mr. America, Tex Thompson, uh, Airwave, Wildcat, uh, the Jay Garrick Flash, of course, a former Justice Society member himself, the blue-faced Manhunter, Paul Kirk, of course, TNT and Dynamite, and a guy swimming with yellow gloves. That can't be Aquaman, can it be, Shag? Because Earth 2 doesn't have an Aquaman. Okay, I'm not going to bring up that argument again. I think uh, Shag and Rob have finally made, uh, made peace with this topic of the existence and uh, where exactly the golden age aquaman fits in the old dc continuity well as the heroes uh, vacate the parasphere we are back at the justice society headquarters which of course has been taken over by the monster society and mr mind that alien worm from the earth s dimension finds a, a little earth two thing amongst his confederates that uh, he's going to have trouble dealing with, and that's something called democracy, as Mr. Who, Neola, and Nightshade have uh, decided that uh, they would rather just uh, use their powers and their society to just rob banks and plunder the world and not bother with this conquesting issues. Leave that for Hitler and the rest and the professionals. And they have sent for help, just in case Mr. Mind uh, didn't care for that idea. And we have the reappearance of Oom back from the dark side of the moon, where presumably he's been using the Pink Floyd albums. And I didn't mention, of course, that the dummy is here, 
who we couldn't see, of course, because the frame was up too high. And he's a little bit down low. And his mind is shocked as to how exactly that they were able to bring back Oom. Well, this is where the dummy pops up and they finds out that he's a, a bit of a magician himself and more exactly a highfalutin pickpocket, really. And uh, to one with a special affinity for magic, like yours truly, it wasn't hard to locate the moonstone in the dimensional cubbyhole where old Mike had stashed it. And, of course, Mr. Mind is not happy with this rebellion. And Oom is about to grab the little ship and gives it a fling and the little Mr. Mind ship swings out through the roof of the Justice Society headquarters. And Oom reclaims the moonstone from the dummy and fuses it with his own body so that he can't be used up and sent away anymore. And this is where Oom says he is taking over and is now called the Society of Oom. Oh, why didn't you just call yourself Dr. Oom and get it over with? Well, Mr. Mindship is in a bad shape and he decides it's time to vacate this dimension. And as he pops through, who does he see? But of course, Green Lantern, Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell, which as you remember in the other the conclusion of All-Star Squadron 52, there's that word, that's that number again, uh, have bounced off Harbinger and are headed back to Earth 2. And Mr. Mind just uses the first window he can see and heads into the world of Earth S. And uh, as he uh, comes down upon towards uh, what I assume to be New York City, but we have come to also know as Fawcett City, we see sort of a spiritual vision of Captain Marvel standing over top of the city skyscape. And of course, this is going to uh, tie into the future adventures of Captain Marvel and the Marvel family as uh, Mr. Mind forms the traditional, the more traditional monster society of evil. And for those, you'll have to try to find back issues somewhere um, through all of your online sources. I believe there was a published edition that is extremely rare. It's in the four figures now. Um, putting together the Monster Society of Evil stories from the, uh, the old Fawcett comics of the late 1940s. But uh, that's enough. We're done with Mr. Mine now. And as we see uh, Alan, Johnny, and Libby... And where do they seem to emerge but into a satellite that is, of course, that we know of, if we've been reading Crisis, as the Monitor's Satellite. And this is that great uh, scene from Crisis on Infinite Earths where we uh, have DC heroes from all points of time and publishing dates all meeting under the, uh, the roof of... Uh, of the ages of the mar of the monitor and of course harbinger and for that we have to go to uh, back to crisis on infinite earths and we can catch up with the adventures there and of course uh, our all-stars are meeting some modern uh, as a modern as in 1985 versions of justice society members that they know themselves such as dr fate Wildcat and somebody named Power Girl. And of course they meet up uh, with their 1940s compatriot 
Amazing Man, and the 1985 version of Jay Garrick, the original Flash. So let's put an end to that because this is tying back into crisis itself. And even though uh, we can't avoid the crisis at this point, we are going to move ahead with what I think I'm going to tie up our, our episode with, with a brief coverage of All-Star Squadron 54 and the final climax of the fight with what's left of the Monster Society of Evil after Mr. Mind has taken off. Oh, I'm sorry, the Society of Oom. Hail Oom! That's for Professor Allen out there. And now we go to All-Star Squadron 54. Again, still with the uh, Crisis Trade dress because it is in a special crossover. As it states, and we have Oom outside the Perisphere and Trilon towering over above the structure, fighting with our man Green Lantern, the Flash, and Amazing Man. As we open, we do find some of these characters uh, on patrol looking for the Monster Society of Evil. We got Amazing Man in Harlem, Superman's over Metropolis, of course. Where else would he be? We have the Shining Knight who has shown up in. Philadelphia because All-Star Squadron is that's that, that uh, title that that placed the seven soldiers of victory's own uh, base of operations as Philadelphia and we've got Hawk Girl and Sandy are on top of a building somewhere Robot Man and Dr. Occult are racing around and uh, Patrolman Jim Harper, alias the Guardian, is uh, doing the pounding the beat in his home of Suicide Slum in New York, keeping that newsboy legion out of trouble. And meanwhile, back at the Parisphere and Trilon, our man and Gernsback are catching us up on a few things. Good thing because who shows up but Alan Scott and Batman and Robin, the Golden Age versions of course in their proper timeline because this is crisis and you have to keep this stuff straight and of course we find out about the disappearance of the board of the eight Justice Society veterans who of course have been thrown into hyperspace and we get the flashback about Dr. Fate and Oom on the moon uh, the Freedom Fighters to Earth X and Firebrand has gone off with Harbinger to fight the crisis but we get back to our point of concern elsewhere. <laughs> the official elsewhere, because Roy Thomas wrote it. We have Oom, Night Nightshade, Naola, and Mr. Who walking the streets, uh, along with the dummy, of course, who is uh, striding or whatever it is that a wooden dummy does that's uh, come to life. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, the other three are kvetching a little bit because Oom seems to have taken over the society and the dummy of course is kind of changing hands doing what he does uh, finding opportunity stop carping you mugs you don't see the dummy whining like a weasel do ya well he is a weasel but so why don't you give me a clue where the heck we're heading Oom baby and Oom is just sort of on a rampage out through the streets as cars and people walk off into the to the area and try to get out of the, this monster this odd little cooking monster society's way in a fit of exposition the dummy brings us up to speed 
that Mr. Mind is uh, basically been thrown out of his own group, as we knew in uh, issue 53. And Oom is in charge. He's in order to affect that, he smashes into bits with one mighty fist what appears to be a 1939 or 1940 model Ford. And he still has his moonstone with him. And of course, the dummy says, uh, Pardon me, Umzi, but if you're tired of holding the red moonstone of Yergzil, I'll be glad to. And of course, dummy's trying to con this out of his hands. What you know about moonstone Um carries in chest, puppet? Uh, why, you know nothing. I just helped you find it so we could beat Mr. Mind, remember? Um remembers. That's why Um will swallow the stone so nothing can ever threaten Um again. And the dummy just realizes what he's done. He's basically doomed the society and the world to the plunder of Um. So Mr. Google's nice, nice thinking, dummy. Oh, dummy, you're such a dummy. And then we get a really great uh, splash page piece of Jay Garrick the Flash saving Joan Garrick from a crashing locomotive. And of course, this is uh, all in the speed of uh, Flash being on the way to the Trilon and Parasphere in order to reunite with the rest of the All-Star Squadron who still haven't found the Monster Society. But that's okay, because the Monster Society have found them. They appear at the Trilon. Mr. Who in his giant size form as Neola whips up a furious windstorm. And Oom, as for Oom, Oom smash. He's just out here to cause some damage. Mr. Who is taken out by a giant fist, that of course is a construct of Alan Scott's Green Lantern power ring. Amazing Man does what he does. He uh, manages to turn himself into a piece of rubber by touching a tire, sort of the Absorbing Man kind of trick. And Neola is taken over by nothing other than a Batarang. Good thinking, Boy Wonder. As the Tarantula fights off Nightshade, manages to kick him into the teeth. And that's in a suitable battle, because remember, the Tarantula has a connection to the Sandman, and the Nightshade is basically Sandman's uh, sparring partner. As for the dummy, he decides to take on none other than Alan Scott by jumping onto his head. And of course, uh, this is a great revelation because as Alan Scott puts up a shield to deflect the, the, uh, the puppet, the dummy, of course, is made of wood and he flies falls right through. Why his clothes don't strip off at this point in time, I don't know. Because you remember, Alan Scott's ring is impervious to anything made of wood. That, of course, is uh, his kryptonite to keep him from becoming too powerful or having the scripter be faced with an indestructible superhero. All these sorts of plot devices that we have in order to, uh, to always give our superheroes a little bit of a challenge. And as we see, it was a good ploy because the dummy has knocked out Alan Scott and sent him into Dreamland, Dreamland for a little bit. So he's out of the fight. The, uh, the rest of the Monster Society is able to, at this point, to regroup, overcome their opponents, including Our Man and Amazing Man. And then, of course, what do we have? Oom is going to take over again. But now the dummy has second thoughts about how he treated poor Alan. 
So he's waking him up. Uh, wake up, Green Lantern. We can beat this bum. And Alan Scott goes, what? I can't think clearly. Meanwhile, Oom is making uh, great sport with our man and the rest of the squadron. But now, Alan is back to life and manages to, how should we say, regurgitate the moonstone from Oom's tummy. Now Oom has the rumbly tumblies, and before he can grab a Pepto-Bismol, he explodes and leaves Oom Goop all over the rest of the All-Star Squadron. When out should appear but Dr. Fate, reappearing from the moon and managing to get back to the scene of the fight and hopefully not mentioning any of this to NASA or to Neil Armstrong. So he seems to have the end of the fight here. Dr. Fate is back. The All-Star Stars are regrouping. And the remnants of the Monster Society are taken into custody. And now we're back to that Monitor satellite again and Harbinger. As Firebrand gets a new mission. As she is off to grab more characters from out of time. And this is very interesting. This has nothing to do with the Seven Soldiers, other than we're getting some great Golden and Silver Age characters that come from other periods of time, other than just uh, the World War II era. Of course, we get the Black Pirate and his son. Uh, they are from Sensation Comics, uh, where they were published, and they, they come from the period of the, of the pirates and the days of the Spanish Main. We have Miss America on her horse, and she is from the American Revolution. We have uh, John, the Viking Prince, from the days of the Vikings. Marcus, the Golden Gladiator, from, uh, well, the, the Roman times. He's a Roman centurion. And we have Valda, who is actually a, uh, a construct of Roy Thomas himself, a character from the days of Constantine, that he created in the pages of Arak, which was an ongoing uh, title about this time, along with uh, All-Star Squadron. Just some more of the uh, the layers of Roy, what Roy brought to DC with him. On carrying on, of course, we have the Silent Knight from the days of King Arthur, um, and from the old, our Old West, from the American and uh, Mexican West, we have the Trigger Twins, the Roving Ranger from Texas, and Don Caballero from Old Mexico, sort of a, a bargain basement Zorro sort of a character. And Firebrand is, uh, oh, did I mention NASA? Because Firebrand has assembled these characters to stop a NASA moonshot from taking off. And why did we get this, uh, this amazing, incredible group? Because <laughs> in attacking the NASA complex in Florida in modern times in 1985, a group of Native Americans on horseback led by Super Chief, another great Silver Age uh, DC character, is attacking uh, the Cape Canaveral base as a moonshot is about to take off. That is the end of All-Star Squadron 54 and uh, Firebrand and her new uh, 
all-star squadron of time-tossed heroes are going to have to uh, be taken care of in all-star squadron 55 and but you know what that's where i'm going to leave this podcast because the only reason i came along to do this was just to give you a progression of one of the vigilantes characters probably one of the few villains that has been remembered or recalled to modern times and that of course is the dummy Uh, the dummy will plague the vigilante through several uh, adventures in action comics through the 1940s and 50s and we'll see him again during vigilante's revivals um, into the 1970s and he will be the and just not to drop a spoiler for a story that I've got a long ways before to go before I ever cover in um, the miniseries of 1997 Vigilante uh, Prairie Lights City Justice no City Lights Prairie Justice hey that's the name of the podcast you'd think I'd get that right uh, the dummy is one of the main uh, antagonists and also he appears in one of uh, Vigilante's world's finest comics Uh, revival stories in about 1977 and I won't say too much about that so yes I have kind of left you hanging with a lot of what happens into crisis on infinite earths but um, as we get towards uh, the era where crisis 12 comes into vigilante's continuity we'll talk about it a little bit more but in the meantime this isn't a crisis cast believe it or not this is a vigilante cast so I only wanted to deal with this so that we could be brought up the snuff with uh, how the wherein the dummy fits into the current continuity that we're facing uh, with Vigilante as we travel through Action Comics. And I should also add that Roy is not done with the dummy as well. We'll see him again in Infinity Inc. So for further crisis coverage, I suggest several other podcasts. Uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America uh, with Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner over on the Two Tree Freaks Network. I believe they didn't get uh, as far along as they had wished uh, with that podcast, but it's an incredibly well done production. Also, I believe Murd and Peter Rios are also doing a Crisis Tapes uh, coverage, and I want to say they are about halfway through. They... uh, They take their time and they do it well. And that is over on the uh, Comic Geek Speak show and on their network. So you just look for Crisis Tapes and uh, Murd, you will find, is a great stickler for accuracy. And if you really want to go deep diving into Crisis on Infinite Earths, this is a man who actually did his university thesis on Crisis on Infinite Earths. So uh, look for Comic Geek Speak and the Crisis Tapes and on Two True Freaks, Tales of the Justice Society of America. And I should add, for extremely close detail of the All-Star Squadron title itself, issue by issue, don't miss uh, Billy Dunleavy and his World on Fire podcast which is ending soon. They have all been through the All-Star Squadron uh, 
title, its entire run, and several ancillary episodes. And they are, uh, at this point, coming to an end, but that'll still be on the feed. And, of course, that was, uh, and that was of course, begun by uh, Billy and his uh, former uh, podcasting partner, Herman Lowe. Uh, Billy has basically assumed uh, the operations of Earth on Fire at this point. Or World on Fire, pardon me. So the World on Fire podcast. Speaking of Billy Dunlavy, I was... Uh, recently honored to appear on um, his magazines and monsters uh, podcast and uh, we talked about an old brave and bold story from about 1970 featuring batman and the teen titans so you can look for that please Uh, i believe it dropped about december 7th so that day that will live in infamy you can listen to me and billy rap uh, all about uh, these dirty hippies taking over gotham city As for me, where am I going with this crisis in All-Star Squadron? Well, not very far. I'm going to All-Star Squadron 56, which is actually an adaptation, even though it's uh, got the crisis banner over it, is a, uh, as I said, one of Roy's free adaptations of a Golden Age story, and that is Leading Comics number 4. And, uh, of course, the Seven Soldiers of Victory. So, nominally, though, when I do it, it'll be, of course, my usual seven-part adventure. You know, taking apart the uh, the soldiers in their individual runs along with their partners. And, of course, covering the uh, beginnings and endings. And I'll probably tie it up somehow, actually, how the crisis ties into the original Golden Age story, but my focus will be on the Golden Age story itself, and I probably won't cover uh, this All-Star 56 tie-in until the very last episode. That just seems to be the best way to do it. Uh, It's very difficult to try to tie in all of Roy's different uh, nuances into into what essentially was a tale written in... Let's face it, 1943, 1942 rather. So as we, uh, as I record this episode, uh, it's getting close to the to uh, Christmas event. So this uh, tale will drop sometime uh, during the Christmas season, as I uh, take advantage of the break to actually get started on the Seven Soldiers of Victory podcast as well as as well as some of my own personal writings and a few other projects. And I look forward to hosting myself, my daughter, and my new son-in-law and their dog, Jack, into our, for the first Christmas, in our new home here in Pincher Creek, Alberta. So for Greg Sanders Rodeo Radio, I think it'd be appropriate to have in a, a good cowboy Christmas tune. So... Let's have Michael Murphy and friends with the Cowboys Christmas Ball. Way out in West Texas, where the Clear Fork waters flow, where the cattle are up browsing and the Spanish ponies grow, where the northers come a whistling and the old dust devils roll, and the prairie dogs are sneezing and freezing from the cold. 
Where the lonesome tawny prairies melt into the airy streams And the double mountains slumber in the heavenly kind of dreams Where the antelope are grazing and the lonesome plovers call It was there that I attended the cowboy Christmas ball The music was a fiddle and a lively tambourine And a big bass violin ported by stage from Abilene Now the room was togged out gorgeous with mistletoe and shawls And the candles flickered frescoes all around them merry walls Come from Swenson's Ranch. Yep, they called him Wendy Bill from Little Dead Man's Branch. When he commenced to holler, Now, fellas, stake your pen. Lock horns with all them heifers and wrestle them just like men. Salute them lovely critters. Now swing them and let them go. And climb the grapevine round and round. Now hands all do-si-do. You mavericks join the roundup. Just skip the waterfall. Boy, it was getting active at the Cowboy Christmas Ball. Boys were tolerable skittish, and the ladies powerful neat. That old bass violin music made us jump in with both feet. That wailing frisky fiddle I never will forget. And Wendy Bill kept singing, and I believe I hear him yet. Boys chasing squirrels, cut up to the side. Doc Hollis to the center. Oh, now Crosby Charlie's ride. Around you general kittens. Now rope and balance all more. Hey, it was getting happy at the cowboy Christmas ball. The dust rose fast and furious, and we all just galloped around. Till the scenery got so giddy. That Z-Bar Dick went down We buckled to our partners And told them to hold on And shook our hooves like lightning Until the early dawn Don't tell me about cotillions Or polkas, no siree That world in Madison City It takes the cake from me Oh, Bill, I won't forget you And I often will recall That lively gated soiree Called the Cowboy Christmas Ball Oh no, I won't forget it The Cowboy Christmas Ball Oh goodness gracious, would you look at the time Yes, that was Cowboy Christmas Ball by uh, Michael Martin Murphy who you may remember uh, if you remember back that far as a so-called one-hit wonder that he had on the pop charts with a song called Wildfire. But he is far from a one-hit wonder. He moved over to the country charts, uh, had several episode, uh, albums throughout the 1980s. In the 1990s, he entered the Americana uh, uh, sort of a platform of an offshoot of country music. And, of course, he got into more doing albums of more traditional um, 
cowboy music, I guess you could call it. And uh, the Cowboy Christmas Ball came out on, uh, I believe, uh, the album was called Cowboy Songs 3 and would have come out about 1994, as I remember it. And he has some guests on here. Susie Boggess, who was also a, uh, a country star who headed into the Americana realm uh, when Nashville decided she was too old for them. And Don Edwards, uh, the late Don Edwards, as I write this, who just passed away here this autumn of uh, 2022. And also guesting on this are members of uh, a great and very funny uh, country and uh, comedy act called Riders in the Sky. And uh, th these are the sorts of, uh, of uh, this is probably my favorite form of music. Um, not so much, you know, your country radio kind of sort of thing, but the offshoots where you pretty much have to <laughs> go to uh, specialized concerts or internet radio stations to actually hear this uh, more traditional sort of music. And I've gotten right into it because my museum in Pincher Creek is uh, has revived a... Uh, the, uh, the uh, Cowboy Poetry and Music Fair in the summer that we call Shindig and we're going to do it again this summer called Shindig 2 so and of course I have several friends at least on the uh, the Canadian side of this market and uh, as you probably have reckoned I'm quite the fan of a gentleman by the name of Ian Tyson who also entered that market sometime in the 1980s and actually was a help was a uh, pioneer of the uh, the Americana platform of music. Going to do it uh, as I as I sign off here. I want to wish everybody a wonderful Christmas season and best tidings for another 2023. I know we keep saying it, and the years sometimes the times just get worse. But I think overall, in some ways, they do get better. Um, We've had a hell of a run since uh, the end of 2019. Uh, and uh, I hope for it to give us a break at least in 2023. We can't affect what's happening, but at least we can say hope for it. And if we don't have hope, folks, I don't know what we have. So, so long, folks. Merry Christmas and best of the season. In the corner of a dark bar room Said a little cowboy singing western tune Singing songs that he learned as a child All about the west back when it was wild well, So long partners, you've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast all materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email go to vigilantecast at gmail.com website is www 
www.rangergourdsroundup, all one word, at .wordpress.com. And we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the Cowboy Crusader. Vaya con Dios, compadres, eh? Cause he's the last of the same.